Welcome to the Code and Bootstrapping Podcast. Today I'm talking to Arvid Call. Welcome. Hey there. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Um, I said this last episode, actually, but I think you are just about the ideal kind of guest to talk to because not only did you just bootstrap a company to a successful exit, but you used the exact tech stack that I'm teaching on this channel. So uh, um, I guess I've got a lot of questions for you, but how did you end up using Elixir? Yeah. Um... There was a thing. I, I, I used to work in a normal job, like as a software, uh-huh. software developer at some point. And um, I came into this job through a couple of connections with friends. It was really, really strange. And I just met with a couple of guys from a company that were in the Internet of Things space. Mm-hmm. And they really wanted to build a really, really functional and really high-performance platform for IoT. And if you are in IoT, you have all these millions of devices and they all connect to each other and they all send small little messages and it's all in parallel. So they were looking at a good stack for that. Mm-hmm. And at that point, like Elixir was just up and coming. So they looked at that and said, hmm, yeah, this is actually the perfect language, right? Coming from Erlang, coming from this, this kind of phone switching system. Yeah, this is what IoT is today. And yeah, they, they went with that. So I learned it at that company. How long ago was this? Year, that was must have been like four years ago. Four years when ago when it started. So that was around, I would say, uh, 1.4, 1.5 Elixir. I, I yeah. So you were. Uh, it was like Phoenix 1.1.1.2. That, that's like the. That's the about when I started generation. actually. So so yeah. you were working with uh, this fairly new programming language for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and then you started a side project using the same language. It's exactly, because that was the stack that I just learned. Mm-hmm. And that worked so well for me, and it worked well for the company there too, because we were a team of let's say like four or five developers that were all working on the same application, and it was super easy. It was with like being modular and like just adding more things here and there and, and nice little components that made it super super easy both on the front end side, which was Vue.js, which is also nice component structure and stuff, and then the modules uh, on the back end on the Elixir stack with Phoenix. So it just all worked really well for that purpose. And then when we built Feedback Panda, I just used what I That makes that sense. Point, right? So that was exa- exactly the, the project. And it turned out there was a really good choice because um, there's a lot of parallel activity in our product too that I really didn't ant- anticipate, but it worked out to, because I, I can explain that later. Interesting. Yeah. But, yeah. I want to hear more about that. Although... Yeah, first, maybe just a quick overview. So you started Feedback Panda in 2017. That's right. And then you sold it in 2019, just recently. Yeah, like like three or four months ago in July. We we sold it after what was not even two full years of running the company. That worked out really well. All right. And you said it was a life-changing amount of money, or at least moderately so? Certainly. And yeah, certainly the the biggest check I've ever seen. Can can so. you uh, like can you say how long it took before you got to any revenue at all, and then maybe you know how how much you scaled it up to before you finally sold it? Okay, so we started. Let me maybe quickly explain what it is and just like go into the sure, whole sure. origin story. Yeah, won't take long. Um, my partner Danielle, that who I founded the company with, she was an English a second language online teacher. So that was essentially what she was doing for money. Um, that, that means like teaching online from home and teaching essentially Chinese children through the internet. 
mm-hmm. right? Big letting learn English. Big business right now. It certainly yeah. is a, a, a growing market, and and that was one of the reasons why we scaled so well. But I'll get to that in a bit. So she was doing all this work twelve hours a day, and then there was a component of her job that was not really paid, but was essential to her actually getting paid that was giving student feedback to the parents of the student uh, yeah so the parents Chinese parents wanted to know what did my kid do today what uh, do they have to learn for the next lesson how do they prepare how they how can they um, just like train themselves to be better so this kind of feedback was important to write but writing it by hand took two additional hours every day two and hours. that was unpaid time yeah how, it's two hours how many hours it's a like, day of teaching 12 hours, like 10, 12 hours a day with two okay. lessons per hour. There's like 20, 20 students to talk, maybe okay. 24. And then you have to write a couple paragraphs of text for each. So that just amounts to a so lot So like of time. 10 to 20% right? extra work. Yeah. yeah. And then try to remember all of this stuff. Most people that were teaching like this came up with their own little system. So they had like mm-hmm. Word files here and Excel sheets here and all this kind of stuff. And so did Danielle. So she was like scouring through her folders, trying to figure out what she wrote for a similar lesson for another student. And at some point she just said like, can we not build something there? Can we not like consolidate this into an actual tool? Because I'm a software developer. She understood that we can solve these kind of problems. And then we did. I solved it for her in the beginning, mm-hmm. right? To build a system for her to, to be able to use templates for things that she already had written and just like change the student name automatically and add a couple things that were specific to the lesson. And then we built a system kind of for her, but with the thought that other people might also want to use it. How, how long and was it just her using it out of curiosity? I think in the, the prototype took us a couple weeks, maybe a month, just for her testing. Mm-hmm. And then we opened it up immediately. Oh, so it was pretty quick. Like, yeah, and, and I built the whole thing knowing that it could be a SaaS as a SaaS. So it had a login system with only one user. It oh, okay, had a okay, okay. System <laughs> set up without actually being connected to Stripe, but it was all there. I, I want to circle that. back on this a little bit because that's that's really yeah, interesting sure. to me. You uh, you invested pretty heavily in you know time and um, why well, I don't know about money, but at least in time of building out all this stuff, uh, knowing that other people you, you, might be using it. Right. There, there's a difference. I could have implemented a full payment system from the beginning, mm-hmm. but I only I kind of stubbed it, right? I kind of took the part that this is where the payment system would live. Oh, gotcha, or in gotcha. the same, like, it's, it's like you, you build the abstraction, but you don't implement it. You, know, you mm-hmm. build the interface, but you don't have an implementation for it, but it's there. So if there is anything that you need to then later implement, you know exactly where it is, and it's part of the flow. So that, that's how we did all of these kind of integrations that then later turned out to be important, like invoicing, all these kind of things. They were thought of, but not really implemented. They were just like parts of an abstraction. So, so when you opened it up for others to use, was it a free trial for a while, or was yeah, it paid we, from... We've always had a free trial in the system because, um, first of all, we believe that if you want to, if, if you want somebody to actually pay you money, you have to convince them that there's value. Mm-hmm. So it, within the trial period, you have 30 days in our case to convince this person. And if it takes 30 days and they're still not convinced, then maybe there's a like a problem with your value proposition. So it's always nice to to actually have this opportunity to have to convince somebody instead of having them already be convinced enough to put in their credit cards, like this kind of stuff. There was a there was a lot of discussion about this at MicroConf just a couple couple days ago in Dubrovnik, MicroConf Europe, about like should there be a credit card up front or should it be later? And there's this movement now that a lot of companies actually 
take their credit card upfront model and turn this into a free trial and then grab the credit card later just to have the chance to actually convince people in the meantime that would never sign up if they would have to put yeah. a credit card from the beginning. And I can so, imagine, especially since, I mean, not only are you, you doing B2C, but um, it's it's even like a tougher customer segment than developers. Like, a, for example, yeah, with me and well, Alchemist Camp, you know, developers make a lot more than $21 a month. So it's like a really, yeah. if it's useful for them, it's it's like a very small thing. But I, I know, um, I, I've actually been an English teacher in the past, and it's a little bit, uh, a little bit tighter budgets then. Yeah, certainly. The, yeah. the, the one thing that we could communicate very clearly with our pricing, which at that point when we started was 10 bucks a month, Mm-hmm. was that this is essentially one extra hour you teach or yeah. extra lesson you teach, which is half an hour. And if using the product allows you to even teach one or two extra hours a month, which it easily did because it saved you two hours of time every single day. So if you add that up, right, there's the potential of actually teaching like an additional full day or more a month. So the math was pretty easy. So then your customers then, it sounds like they were more like freelancers than normal full-time workers yes. so that they had the flexibility yeah. to turn more time into more money that's right that's like gig economy workers um as our target audience that made it very easy to sell to them directly as well because there was nobody that. else who had this decision making power over the budget they had the decision making yeah. power over their own budget and then they could just spend it so yeah i can see that yeah being a big big edge versus a full-time employee who might not mm-hmm. know how to use that extra hour profitably right and in, in an ed tech space uh in the ed tech space itself it's super hard to get to the school and have them find money in their already non-existing budget to pay for a tool that may or may not make their um teaching staff more productive because like you said like they have an extra hour now so what do they do the curriculum is already set like hours already distributed so they just like kind of hang around but in a system where people can find their own work and make their own money. The incentive is to yeah be as efficient every single hour as possible, and not just to fit into the schedule that's predetermined. So yes, yeah, a B two B C market. I think that's that's what they call Makes it. It's both like a business and a customer, like a, a prosumer, like a professional consumer of the tool. And then made, made it also a very targetable market. It was a super niche market, right? This mm-hmm. English teachers teaching for Chinese kid English companies, teaching online, living in the United States, and teaching Chinese children. Like that is extremely specific of a market, but that makes it much easier to target and also much easier to focus the vision on and find a product that actually solves the problem. So just stepping back a little bit, so this was pretty quickly you started the free trial and then how long was it before you got to the $10 a month plan? Um, so we had a 30-day free trial, and then they would have to sign up. Okay. So that's, uh, that's yeah, that's what it was. So it was and about, people signed up. So it was about two months yeah. after you started writing code, you had people paying. Pretty much, yeah. There was, there was a, there's an episode somewhere in there. So I, I wrote the code for the payment system, like just shortly before we actually launched it to the public. And by launching it to the public, it was essentially commenting on one Facebook post. And that was all the marketing <laughs> we did for the first year. 
because it, like I said, this is a very tight knit community. This is a very small niche. So there's a lot of communication structures in the niche, a lot of networking. So actually we just had to throw it in there somewhere and then snowballed from there. But, uh, and that was really nice because in a community like teachers that love sharing, it's really cool if they share your product, right? This exactly. Kind of, kind of fits, so you saw immediately the there was demand. Right. But there, there was so, so much demand and people, there was a lot of people coming in. I think the, the first day we, we put it out there, there was like 50 signups, which for a new product was a lot in a small market. The next day we had like 80 signups. There was a lot, lot going on just from this, this kind of snowballing effect. Uh, led to the fact that a week after the first people started trying, um, trying out the software, somebody tried to pay. But I had not yet changed the test key, the Stripe test key, to the production key. Oh, so people tried to pay and couldn't. So I had to do like an emergency deployment for our company to be able to earn money. So that was kind of kind of fun because I didn't expect people to pay like for the next three weeks. But somebody was already convinced that this is good for them, that they wanted to subscribe. That's the best kind and, of emergency. That, exactly. That that was an emergency that uh, I had not anticipated because it's one of the, the good ones. Right? Um, it also showed us at that point that we had really hit the nail with the solution. And not just with the solution, but actually recognizing the problem. Because said one one of the things that I often see in startups is that they they go solution first, and then they try to fit a problem onto their solution, and then they try to fit an audience onto the problem. We went the other way around, which to me seems like the right way. We had the audience; we knew like English teachers online, and they they teach a lot, and then they have a problem. They have a lot of problems. Like teachers yeah, always yeah. have a lot of problems, but there's one core problem. There's one critical problem, which is they have two hours a day that. They never get compensated for, but if they don't do it, they don't get paid. That is a pretty critical problem, right? Because yeah, yeah. Just, just adds up. And after a day of 10, 12 hours of teaching, that is time you don't want to spend at all doing anything but sleeping or spending time with your kids or your family or relaxing or anything, anything but typing and like remembering your whole day. So we figured out that this was the essential problem that needed to be solved. And once we had a solution that actually sped that up and like speeding up means from two hours to five minutes, which is significant, right? There's a lot That's of time saving impressive. in there. It even even reduced the time, not just to five minutes at the end of the day, but they could actually squeeze that in between the lessons. So once they were done teaching, where before they had to add two more hours, they were actually done using our product. So it really, really shifted the, the baseline of what is free time for an English online teacher using these kind of Chinese kid English companies significantly. So we knew it was a critical problem. We knew we had a really good solution because it helped Danyang, so it would help other people too. And then we knew exactly who to talk to because we knew how these teachers would talk amongst each other, where they would congregate, where the water cooler is, essentially. So it, it was very clear from these first customers that we had found a good solution already. Now, were you, have you consciously, or at the time, were you consciously thinking about um, looking for a side project to build? Um, it, it, that's a very interesting question because I'm kind of mixing up my own memory of what I wanted to do and what I eventually ended up doing. The thing is the company I work for, this, this IoT company that was in Hamburg in Germany and I live in Berlin mm -hmm. in Germany. There's a two and a half hour commute between these two places and I did that three times a week. So I would drive there or like take a train there for two and a half hours. And at the end of the day, I would come back for two and a half hours. And in all of this time, I would consume a lot of books, like Built to Sell. I would read okay. um, like, the hard thing about hard things. I would read books like um, The 4-Hour Workweek. So it kind of implanted 
just these ideas of the side projects are really cool. Let's look for something so you're and aware. let's maybe find an opportunity. So I was I was training myself in a way to to spot these opportunities and then jump onto them once they the, occur. The reason I ask is because uh, maybe not as much in these books, but I've seen a lot of discussion in places like Hacker News and then more recently on podcasts where it used to be everyone was saying scratch your own itch. Mm-hmm. But then it turned out that I mean, it's still great for a lot of people, but anything that lots of developers want has probably, that's probably already been scratched thoroughly. And there may even be an open source version that does exactly what you need. On the other hand, uh, I've seen a lot of people just dive into markets they don't know at all and um, where there's a lot of demand and, and maybe not many technical people. But it seems like what you did was the combination of the two of those things. It was... Danielle's itch and most of her peers were not technical, but you are, and you could build exactly what she needed and see how it went every day. It's, it's kind of hard to scale to say, like, f- find a life partner and then find an itch somewhere in their life. It doesn't well, really work for it, everybody. It could work with good friends. I mean, I mean, exactly. if you have a little bit wider of a social circle and not yeah. all of your friends are developers, uh, it does seem like... This this might be a good way to go about uh, about uh, finding ideas. Okay. Is look at what if, your non technical friends are struggling with, or what you see, the, or what you hear them complain about. Yeah, exactly. And you you can you can ask them what's the one thing what is really annoying, but you have to do it. Like what what's the one thing that you you find to be detracting from your own efficiency at your job or at your hobby. It could be anything, right? It doesn't yeah. have to be a job. It doesn't have to be business, but that's usually where good money is. So that's, uh, that's at least a, a, a nice angle to look at. But yeah, asking your, your peers, your family, your friends, maybe even your colleagues that are not in the same department, if you work in a, a bigger company, about things they do with Excel like what the, there's just these kind of yeah right because yeah, yeah. you you have this just uh, go to the bar room. where all the sales reps hang out listen to them complain take notes and what, yeah once once they mention spreadsheets and either sending them over email or just like working uh working with multiple at the same time and coordinating that's that's where you should listen up because like spreadsheets are a really good generic solution to almost every problem but they only solve every problem so well right there's like every SaaS essentially is a number of spreadsheets built, like molded into business logic, and then focusing on a one single problem or any it's, successful SaaS. Is I, essentially, I, you're preaching the choir. In, in my previous life as a brick and mortar entrepreneur, without many technical skills, like spreadsheets did everything. It's almost yeah. like programming for non-programmers. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, because the, the abstraction of data into into a grid almost solves every problem this that is really what it is right the just the, the dimensionality allows you to, to fix almost all of your troubles with a simple spreadsheet but once it comes to automation and once once it comes to the the logic solving problems for you and not you doing it inside of a spreadsheet that's where SAS comes in at least that's that's what I believe because there are to our product at least there are a few competitors in the free space there is Google sheets for teachers that exists. Right, right. Like they have, they have their templates in there, and they copy them. They put in the name of the student, and they paste them. It's great because it's free for them. It just, it also takes time. 
we automate the parts that take the time, right? We, we automate the parts, the retrieval of information and the substitution of information, even like some machine learning based system that uh, translates gender pronouns in, in templates, right? From he did well to she did well, so you don't have to type it twice. These kind of things are added value and that's where the SaaS comes in. You can always solve it with a free Google Sheet and you can even collaborate on it, but a SaaS can consolidate this into really, really effective UX and UI. And at that point, um, yeah, at that point, that's that's the value add that actually makes people pay for it. Okay. And yeah, I, I still believe that you can find a lot of good problems that have never been solved, other than by the people who solve them for themselves, in almost every space, like in in construction or in plumbing or in farming. Oh, I'm like sure there's there, all yeah. these kind of things where, um, just off the top of my head, I have a lot of ideas just from talking to family members and friends. And, and just listening to them complain about the one thing they don't like about their job, because that's also a critical problem, right? You have your audience, you have your critical problem, and then you find a solution, usually works out well. And finding the critical problem, yeah, that's what you have to keep your ears open for. Um, out of curiosity, are you more interested in SaaS versus other kinds of products you can build? Because okay. I've well, noticed, uh, especially with the microconf crowd, actually, there seems to be a really, really strong focus on software as a service, but yeah, there are a lot of know. yeah, there are a lot of other models that uh, that's right that I, yeah, the, I've seen people doing. The great thing about SaaS is recurring revenue. Like that is that is built into the that's the core of a SaaS product is most of the time recurring revenue in some form, right? Mm -hmm. Either a monthly subscription or like a prepaid plan that you top up, these kind of things. Mostly it's a subscription like monthly or yearly model. So you have that. And, and that, makes, that makes just running the company from a bootstrap perspective extremely easy because the number you see is usually quite, wouldn't call it static, but it's, uh, it's, it's a number that you can count on in a way. Mm -hmm. It's not where you have to sell and then there's this big amount of money that comes in and for the next six months there's nothing coming in and you don't know how to pay your bills. The, the great thing about recurring revenue is the fact that it makes things planable. It allows you to invest into your own business. It allows you to just play with the, the, the numbers. So you can mm -hmm. like, switch your payment plans, like increase prices or decrease them, which you probably never should do. But you can at least experiment fairly safely, which is why I like SaaS, um, just from a, from a business perspective. And also the fact that a SaaS can be fairly small and have a lot of impact too. Like you don't need to, like in e-commerce, you um, once you reach a certain scale, you need to like scale up your operations too. Right. right? You, you right. kind of need to get like inventory and you need to store it somewhere. Maybe not if you're a dropshipper, but for other kind of systems, you need to like deal with customer service coming in. Every single question is different and you need to track things. And e-commerce has this kind of scale that, you can't it's a lot avoid, of complexity. But for us, we stayed a company of two for, for the whole time. We sold the company with zero additional employees after Daniela and I. And we were owners and employees at the same time. And how so many we, uh, customers did you scale it up to? We had around five and a half thousand customers at, at that point. Five and a half thousand. Individuals. And did you have very much customer support? Or was yeah, there... But <laughs> yes, we um, customer support is one of the things that I really like talking about because mm -hmm. that is where most of the the automation 
and the documentation kind of stuff went in um, from our side, but we, le we learned a lot about customer support. We were using Intercom for, for the whole platform. Like we integrated the chat widget and we had a knowledge base and we had all of this Intercom stuff built in. And we got a lot of messages from customers because yeah, even though they were English teachers and online teachers, so we would kind of suggest or, or at least assume that they have some technical knowledge. Some of our customers had lots of trouble. They just mm -hmm. they didn't know how to how to install a browser extension. They didn't know um, what happened, like when their browser kind of froze. Or these kind of things. They were like technically some of them were challenged when it came yeah. to using a technical product like ours. But the great thing is we had a product that was really laser focused on solving one problem really well. So there was usually one way to solve it right, right? To, mm -hmm. One way to, to to use the product and get to the outcome you want to accomplish. And the thing is, once you communicate that to a customer, you have this list of steps of what they which they should take. And you could easily take this and just turn it into a knowledge base article. And if you do this with every single question that comes in, you'll end up with a couple dozen, maybe a hundred knowledge base articles. And if you use Intercom or tools like Intercom, mm -hmm. it's not the only one, they will automatically suggest these kind of things if there are similar questions coming in. Ah, so they type so, a question in the chat widget and it says, yeah. did you want this article that you've already written yes. that has your answer? Got Sounds it. like this could help, right? These kind of things. Um, and, and if you do this often enough, it just almost completely reduces the amount of incoming tickets or the tickets that come through to the ones that are actually novel and original questions. Because most of the things is, oh, how do I delete a student? People don't see the little trash can icon and you have to like take a screenshot and point at the trash can icon. And once you do this in a little video or in a screenshot and, and you put that into the article, it's super easy for them to find. So they will click on it, they will see it, they will solve their own problem. You, usually people really like solving their own problems. So about how many, uh, about how many a typical day or week would you actually have to deal with that, uh, that couldn't find their so, help in the knowledge base? Um, it, it was surprisingly static over time. We would have probably 10 to 15 conversations a day that would, that would need our actual attention. And even among those, sometimes it was just confusion or mm -hmm. just like, have you, have you tried this? Here's the article. Look in the first paragraph or the third paragraph. So I would say that maybe five to five to 10 actual problems that involve things that we would need to manually take care of. And even those, um, we kind of automated a bit. We just started mm -hmm. screen recording our solutions on our end for our internal use. So we would use Loom or Tapes, these kind of apps that do the screen record with a little, um, yeah, your own camera Loom, recording. Loom for recording. Chrome and Tapes for macOS. Yeah, but yeah. I think it, I use Tapes all the time. And then Loom came like halfway through and we kind of switched over to that. But it, essentially, Loom is the, the more feature uh, rich at this point. Can You can select better and do better kind of, um, hmm. yeah, you have, have your own face in there. But we would just record what we did. Like some, uh, some teacher would need their data merged or they needed their subscription plan changed or their this billing cycle day, like these kind of businessy things that you don't want to build logic for because they only happen every three weeks. And there, there's this one XKCD comic about like how long um, how often do you do a task and how long should you invest into actually automating that task for it to uh -huh. make sense, right? And I actually have this right here on my wall because I would often check just to, to know, like, is it worth actually investing my developer time into solving this problem or do I just solve it now, take these five minutes 
and solve the same problem again two months from now and not waste a whole day on just spending uh, building this, right? Spending time building this kind of thing. So for these things, we would at least screen record them so that I would know what to do next time or Danielle would know what to do next time. And it turned out that was really useful for us because once we saw the company, we just gave the customer service agent that was taking over our job these videos and we wouldn't have to train them at all because everything was already documented. I'm sure so that's a major it, thing, yeah. It, these kind of things, like automating everything away, putting it into the knowledge base and documenting it, like the internal things, it's like knowledge transfer in anticipation of a sale or an exit of the company. Mm -hmm. we, we noticed that at some point during during this, um, both the due diligence phase for the sale and before, that this is actually quite valuable in itself, right? When, like having when did you first uh, when did you first start thinking that you might sell the company someday? Well, I, I, I said earlier, I read Build to Sell before we even started the company. Gotcha. So it, it's it's always there, right? Once you're in this sphere of indie hackers and um, just hacker news people, there's always thinking about this could be the big thing. This could be a business. So you and, and once it's a business, it could be a business you keep forever, lifestyle business, or it could be a business you sell and it gets acquired or acquired. And you kind of have all these options. You're, you're aware, we were aware of all the options that were on the table. Mm -hmm. And we built the company with it being sellable in mind, but we didn't really sell, think about selling the company until we actually got the email that asked, oh, you're interested. So it was so inbound. We it was inbound, yeah. Ah. It, it's like, well, having post, posted the um, hacker, uh, Indie Hackers interview that Danielle did on Indie Hackers, it gets a lot of public exposure to the crowd that is also interested in SaaS companies, right? Yeah. Once, and, and if you have your, your Stripe revenue verified there, they can see you're actually making money. And if it's automatically pulled from the API, you're not lying, this is the actual information, right? And um, that opens a lot of doors and a lot of people actually come look at your company if you're just public about it. And it, it doesn't have to be like gigantic growth, like nobody's looking for hyper growth in the bootstrap SaaS community, but just consistent progress that attracts a lot of people. What are your thoughts about open revenue or open analytics in general? A lot of people put up their site traffic, but not revenue. Some people I, share almost everything. I think there is very little danger in doing this, I, we, we did not, at least not um, the fine-grained information. We, we put the whole, like, this is our full monthly recurring revenue number. We put that there, but we didn't have, like, a, a public biometrics page or anything like this, mm -hmm. right? There are companies who do, and it's actually kind of cool because you get a lot of insight. And um, we probably would have done this eventually, but got acquired before we did. Um, I, I do believe this is a really cool idea. I think there's very little danger because people are always afraid of clones, people cloning the business model, yeah. people cloning their, their, their business itself. But the one thing that is really important to any business, any booster business, any SaaS business is the, the domain knowledge, the insight and the drive that the founder has. Because without that, you would not be where you are. If you build a company and you, you grow it for two years without a vacation, without spending much time with family, you learn so much at the detriment of your own mental health sometimes that cannot be copied. Like you cannot copy the learnings that we had in two years without spending maybe much more time, 10 years, to actually acquire it. It's, at least that's what I- I, I agree with so that. You, I, yeah, I okay. agree with that. Yeah. I think the argument I've heard recently is that the benefit of everything being open has largely dissipated. 
just because so many companies are open. Although, from what you said, at least for the acquisition, maybe that's not true because you you yeah. increased your luck surface area by by having that, that is, stuff out there. Yeah, exactly. And there's there's a lot of companies that are really interested in acquiring profitable, growing, sustaining like sustainable companies, self-sustaining companies, and by just putting yourself out there, somebody will they'll find it, right? Because it, usually people who put these things into the public also communicated a lot. You find them on Twitter and they always post about the new milestones on indie hackers that they reach. And that puts you on the on the map for a lot of people that you may not even know, that you may not even know exist. At least it puts you on the map for these brokerage companies, like uh, people who would yeah. help you sell your company. And and that alone can be interesting because they have the network that you're not aware of. So it's 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 a good idea to do. And I think there is there is no immediate benefit for um, for the public, I guess, for other indie hackers to to see your numbers because they are extremely specific to your own business, right? They're specific to the marketing you do. They're specific to your own uh, how, how you the expenses you have or uh, how you grow your product, how you build features, all these things. These insights are not in the numbers, but a smart like private equity company that has seen a lot of these numbers and a lot of trajectories, they can infer information from that, that a normal business person may not be able, and a normal business owner may not be able to infer. So it's just like, um, yeah, I, I really like the description of increasing the lack surface there, because that is what it is. It's just like, here, look at me. I think, yeah, I'm, this is interesting. I, I'm not sure if I'll ever open up Alchemist Camp itself that way. Uh, and I don't think I could sell it, because obviously, uh, even though it is recurring revenue, it's also recurring content production, mm. all of it made by me. But I think, yeah, if, if I were to do a uh, more of a software-driven product that's that's like a pure SaaS as opposed to a, you know half SaaS, half content business, I might uh, might open it up. It's, it's interesting you're bringing up this um, being reliant on your presence and your work because mm -hmm. that is one of the things that Built to Sell, the the, the Warwiller book, suggests to not do if you want to have a sellable business right and that's right. also what what we did like we automated ourselves away from customer service by having the knowledge base we automated ourselves away from being able to just get a customer service agent eventually we didn't we hired way too late that's that's one of my failings because i thought i can handle it but that's uh, a bit much if you're both the developer and the customer service agent it really sucks when an outage happens because you have to tell people everything is fine someone is working on it and then you have to work and on be it. working kind on of it. hard Right, so you're the one trying to appease people here and trying to firefight on the other side. So that kind of stuff is not fun. Good to have somebody dealing with this for you or have automation in place that can just respond to people. We are working on it. So having all these things removes you from the business in a good way because the moment you are replaceable or at least you can replace yourself with somebody else or many other people, that makes your business sellable. That's also one of the core learnings that I had from all of our work on Feedback Panda is the more I take myself out, the more value the business has. Because mm -hmm. if I am Feedback Panda, which I'm not, because it was a team effort from the beginning, but if I am the product um, and I'm selling essentially my skill through the product, then it's a service business and it has a totally different perspective on right. being acquired or making like being able to be sold in the end. That's the good thing about SaaS because you can remove yourself and the, the software will run at night while you sleep. And if that happens, that is great. It's also the difference between a freelancer and a, 
I guess, um, an entrepreneur, right? Freelancer, they, they build their time, and the entrepreneur, they, they try to build things that work for them while they don't work. And yeah, that's, uh, got it. That's the um, how did you, so talking about uh, investment in and like finding opportunities, how did you decide how much you wanted to invest when you were pursuing this? I mean, it sounds like you got feedback really quickly that people were interested yeah. in it. Um, yeah. One reason I ask is because you know, we were discussing on Indie Hackers, I think where we first met, we were talking about infrastructure and you you actually spent quite a bit on infrastructure and, and, it, mm-hmm. and you spent quite a bit of time, I would assume, setting yeah. up, uh, you know, a fairly, um, how do I put it, like a, the similar kind of setup that a larger company would do, uh, dockerizing everything and uh, using various AWS services that really was not necessary at the beginning, but I assume saved you time and let you work on other things. So that's that's a sort of thing that mm-hmm. uh, to me makes perfect sense to do once you have a certain amount of size or you you have a certain amount of validation. How are you thinking about like weighing the, the trade-offs in your time and the risk of, of it just being wasted time versus the risk of, of uh, not having enough built out later? I think it's, um, it's a very good question. I, from the beginning, I was hoping that this, this would grow, right? So I was always very optimistic about where it was going. So it made it quite easy to say, ah, oh, it's fine to invest some time into this because uh, yeah, there was always the hope that this would make a lot of people, a lot of, produce a lot of value for a lot of people, which it did because it did that from the beginning for Danielle. So it was, it was fine to uh, extrapolate that into a bigger crowd. Tech-wise, I, I've been burned a couple times before with not thinking of these things from the beginning. Hmm. It's like you don't want to over-optimize, obviously, like the, the premature optimization being the root of all evil, and it really is. But there's a level of naivete that if you if you show that, then that's going to come, come back to bite you in the future. Because you can, obviously, you can just take a, digital ocean droplets for five bucks a month and just run Elixir on the thing and then run your website, point the domain to it and that's it. But then at some point, and that's always the problem, people start using it. And then if you if you actually wanna make an infrastructure change at that point, it involves downtime. It involves like people not being able to use the service and then that comes back, right? That is, that is a pain for your business because all of a sudden some people may not see your downtime notification. They think, oh, the service is down. They go to Facebook and there's this whole thing. So you don't want that. And I, I wanted to avoid all of the potential bad press from the beginning uh, okay. by just thinking about how can I make this very dynamic? How can I make this cloud native? I mm-hmm. really like the phrase, but how can I make this movable, right? How can I turn this into something that can run on a really small system right now? And if I need to, I can move that into a bigger cloud provider and I just need to really switch to DNS and everything is fine. And then that was that was from uh, that was my thought from the beginning because in a couple of projects in the past, both um, working for other people and failing with my own startups, um, that was always the thing that uh, was done way too late. And this time I tried to do it from the beginning. Did you build it in such a way that you could move from AWS to DigitalOcean or to Google or to Azure, or were you kind of locked into AWS through their their more specialized offerings. So um, the software has been on multiple clouds at this point. We began with a really, really small 
Docker-based provider. It was a German company. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I just, it was like 10 bucks a month to host your application there. And it was, yeah, startup, let's just do this, really cool. So I Dockerized from the beginning because I feel anything that I want to deploy, I don't want to deal with things like um, um, blue-green deployments or like rolling restarts and stuff. I don't want to build mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. I don't want to build a system that fetches new code and compiles it. I don't care. I want to have an artifact. I want to put it somewhere and it runs. At least I can do this with releases pretty well, and I'm aware of that. But I thought, let's have an abstraction around this. So I don't need to have a bare metal system that, that I need to take care of. Update, like security patches, all these kind of things. Didn't want to take care of that. I just want to have a really small Linux, Alpine, put Elixir on there, and just like build a release and have it run in there. And did, did Elixir you, being Elixir, right? Go on. Did you even have Nginx in front of it, or was Elixir answering directly? So all, all of the containers that I built were just really exposing port 80 and inside Elixir thought this is port 80 I'm just going to listen there and the initial company we used that small startup they had like a mesosphere cluster or something where they would deal with so they just reverse proxied it they reverse proxied it out and it worked really well because they had their own little uh, um, what is it let's encrypt auto uh, SSL certificate generation which was one of the reasons that I didn't I, like we went there because I didn't want to deal with all of this stuff, like buy my own certificate, upload it here, whatever. And I think only recently has uh, Elixir even, or uh, yeah, I think it's Phoenix, be- become capable of dealing with like a local certificate to do local um, SSL and all these kind of things. And I, I just didn't want to deal with this. I wanted to build a thing that listens on a port to the yeah. regular HTTP and all this other magic is in front of it and done by somebody else. And that has been, I think, the also the core perspective on how I look at services for the thing, like for for the for the application, login systems. We outsourced that to to Auth0, mm-hmm. like the, yeah, the whole identity account. as a service. Payment was all Stripe. Didn't go with any kind of custom invoicing kind of thing. It's all through Stripe and um, image upload and stuff. We went with Cloudinary, just services that did this really well that we would then pay. I mean, it always hurts to pay money to a service that you think you could build for yourself. And I, I, I understand that. But I thought this is going to be something that is going to, again, come back to bite us in the future if we don't um, build it in a smart way that can scale. And I didn't feel confident I could build an identity system that could scale, a payment system that could scale, or even like an image or a file upload system that could scale. So took that into the, yeah, the other systems. Payments especially I would never, never want to mess with. Yeah. In particularly now, we were a European company, we're a German company, and PSD2, the secure SCA kind of thing, the new... Um, I've been reading about that. Yeah, the regulation to make payment even more complicated, like that has been a, a big problem for European companies or companies that have European customers. You only really need one European customer and you're affected, right? So that has been quite painful and I would never want to be required to keep up with this kind of stuff. So just using the the... Stripe system was really cool for identity management of zero has been super easy to implement because they have like social logins and all our customers live on Facebook. So most of them sign up with Facebook. And their free tier is, their free tier has gotten a lot better in the last couple of years. Like I I evaluated it for a previous project and I was like, you know, I'm going to have more than like 5,000 signups before I have or 1,000, I forgot what their limit was, but it was low enough. Yeah. I, like, I th- it looked like I might be spending like 15% of revenue on Auth0, but now they've they've upped the limits quite a bit, and it's it's 
doable for most things where you're charging people, I would say. And if you if you Even don't need like really enterprisey things, if you need enterprisey things like LDAP integration or like complicated um, ActiveX directory stuff, then it's it's turning a bit more expensive. But if you really only have a SaaS with customers, I think we are um, right now Feedback Panda when we sold was at fifty five thousand MRR, mm-hmm. and we paid them forty dollars a month. For the service, like wow. it is, it was it was nothing. Like uh, compared to our database, that was I think almost a hundred times that. But because we used like uh, database as a service, and that got super expensive, also a problem. But that comes with scale, right? At some point, some of these services will get quite expensive because they know that the companies that use them can afford it at that point. And you don't want so the, that's, that's always a risk. You don't want the headache of having to migrate your database because it got full or something like that. So. Yeah, yeah, and, and just like downtime, like if a database has downtime, it's a big problem because all of your source of truth is essentially the database, right? If the database is not there, then your product is unusable. And um, I would rather pay a lot of people some money to be there when the thing goes down and to have it back up within a couple minutes than to have a phone call at, at midnight or like at three in the morning telling me that the database isn't there. So I have to wake up, get to the computer, try right, to figure right. out what's going on, then try to fix it. While at that point, like it, it would already been solved by somebody that uh, like a database as a service company, like the one we used Compose, I think used to be Mongo HQ. It's an IBM oh, I company that. now. Yeah, yeah they're, they're really good at what they're doing and extremely stable. I think we had one hiccup in two years and it was not even a, a, an outage. It was just a tiny disconnect. So. That was fine. So that's the story. Like all of the services we used um, were there because I didn't want to have to build them. And that really helped us focus on the actual business. Right. All right. I'm sorry, but kind of derailed a bit from, good. from your actual question. Uh, let me just ask you three fairly quick questions. First one was, uh, what was your final revenue before you sold it? It was $55,000 US a month. That is excellent. So we can guess about sales prices, but it was definitely a, a significant success. And have you changed any of your ideas about how you go about bootstrapping this kind of thing as a result of what you've gone through the last couple of years? Yeah, I, I think so. There's, there's been a number of moments where I... I always, I always thought bootstrapping is something you do on your own, and that's it. It's a lifestyle business. You run the company by yourself forever, right? You build it so you don't have to work, and everything is, is automatic, and everything is, is doing for you. It's done for you by by a system or by by the, the four hours that you spent uh, in your work week, like the, the Tim Ferriss approach, I guess. Which, which it essentially I'll, I'll link can that be. book and built to sell yeah. both of the notes. Oh, it, yeah. These these two have been quite instrumental, I guess, because I really wanted to have that, and then I had that, but then it continued scaling. It continued growing. Like we were at what, like twenty, thirty thousand a month. That was more than enough to pay for the business and pay us a decent salary. We could stop there, but we continued. Yeah. And by continuing, it became bigger. It became more work and risk increased. That's one of those things because it was all our own company, right? Like that was the only thing that made us money. It was great that it was growing, but it was a risk all of a sudden because it was an asset and a liability. Because if we if it failed, then we have, would have no income. So large schools so, might start making their own systems internally. 
that or we could have competition because right. we were essentially number one in a market with the niche that has zero competition. Now there is some, but they, they deal with it in a different way. So it's not even real competition, but could be, right? Could have happened. And so our risk profile was a completely different one from what the company would have needed because a company like this needs experiments, it needs A-B testing, it needs people to start working on more things and getting market share and like getting deeper into the niche and then other niches. And here we were thinking, what now? Like we can do this, that could be a risk. So I found myself, at least speaking for me personally, to be at a completely different point when it came to um, risk aversion than what was required. And we could have alleviated that by just hiring people to work on all these things that kept our attention from growing the company. Like I said, we didn't have a customer service agent and I would have really needed that because as a developer, you really need to focus, For right? Sure, if there's yeah. an urgent problem or something, you need to be able to tunnel down. And if there are like 20, 30 people reaching out and complaining, not only do you have to respond to them, you also get in the state of mind where people are negative and they are, oh, what's going on? And I can't work, I need to work. And it kind of, impacts you on like a, your, your yeah, the, your, the balance gets thrown off. And as a developer, you need to be able to focus and not to think, oh, these people, I'm going to disappoint them. Oh, don't want that. So hiring people is something I would do much earlier just to be able to focus on the business and growth of the business. So it's, it's like somewhere between um, risk profile problems and also um, skill problems too. That's another thing. Um, I and Danielle, we were really good at building the company from nothing to where we ended up. But I don't think any of us had any expertise or even yeah, the, the, the required skill to continue growing to the to double that size. Mm -hmm. Because we knew how to like how to build a product for, for an audience and find their problem and build a solution and scale up a community and build a tribe around it. But you need different things once you're at 50k. You need to do like marketing on a totally different scale. You need to do paid advertisement or some people do. And your, your marketing just changes. It's just a different game. And we just didn't know what to do. So we also like kind of, we reached a ceiling for ourselves as well. Sounds, sounds, like, uh, sounds like it worked out pretty well though. Um, yeah, any, any last advice or other like books you'd like to share with people beyond Built to Sell and 4-Hour Workweek? Yes. Um, Nireal has this wonderful book called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And that book has been instrumental to how our product was conceived. The hook cycle that he describes is like you, you have some sort of trigger and that, that triggers you into doing something, the action, then you receive a variable reward, which yep. is something, yep. anything, and then you do an investment. And once I understood the investment part, we changed a part of our product and that has led to explosive growth. We, we allowed people to share their templates with other teachers. And the moment they invested in putting that template into our system and shared it with others, the network value of the product surged because other people now could use templates from other teachers. It was like a sharing system. And now some people would share something which triggered them to do another action, share their own template and invest. It's like this, this kind of network effect that I didn't understand before, but Hooked has really made it very clear to me that this is how you build a product that builds a habit of using it, which is helpful if it helps people actually save time every single day. So it's not just like crooky, creepy kind of online games that try to hook you into using them all the time and like divert all your attention. This was actually useful for a productivity tool. To yeah, yeah, definitely a lot, of, a lot of powerful ideas there that can be used uh, for good or bad. 
Um, yeah, well, thank you so much for spending the time and sharing all of this. Uh, it, I mean, I, I am definitely going to learn a bit from it and read Built to Sell, which I, I have not done yet. Uh, what, what's yeah. your Twitter and how would you, you know, if, if, uh, if you're open to people contacting you online, would that be the place? Yeah, I think I'm a, uh, that that's a good idea. My, my Twitter is at Arvid Kahl, like A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. Um, and yeah, I, I hang around there a lot. That and I guess the Indie Hackers forums, you can also find me there. Um, that would be the best place to contact me, I guess. Excellent. And all of the transcripts for these podcasts go up at alchemist.camp slash podcasts. Thank you for listening to Code and Bootstrapping.